morning. I'd like to welcome everyone here this morning and welcome those who are watching on Facebook and those who are listening by other means, whether it be on our FM transmitter, on the, uh, the FM dial, or maybe through the podcast, or however you may be listening this morning, we welcome you. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. And I have preached from this text before. But I felt led of the Holy Spirit to share this with you on Sunday morning. We have been studying the life of Isaac on Wednesday nights. We'll continue to do so, Lord willing. But I felt led, impressed of the Lord to share this with you today. And I trust that God has his own reasons why he wants to do that. And so I'm just going to commit everything into his hand and his trust. And I almost feel like I need to take my shoes off because this is, feels like holy ground of the old covenant here. This is one of the most uh, well-known stories in all of the Old Testament and perhaps the greatest picture of the sacrifice that God would make. And uh, Abraham's going to experience this for just a moment. He's going to, to enter in and, and feel some of what the father felt. So I'm just going to ask you to pray with me right now as we get ready to start. Genesis 22, let's pray. Father in heaven, I just come before you. I confess to you, apart from you, I can do nothing. Lord, I'm, I'm just empty me of self. Let me speak as the oracles of God. Lord, let me be your mouthpiece today. I ask for your enablement, and I ask if there be one here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would... Submit to him before we leave this place today. There may be someone here who is struggling with laying their Isaac on the altar this morning. God, I don't know what it is, but you know. And I pray that you give them the courage to obey you completely and to see your provision. And we give you thanks in advance for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin in chapter 22. And I'm just going to do an exposition of this chapter and let the Lord, I, I have no agenda here. I have no three points in a, in a poem. We're just going to see what God would say to us. It says, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. Now, it says it came to pass after these things. What things? Well, this is not Abraham's first crisis. Abraham has, is going to have four crisis experiences, really. There, there are others, but the first one comes when he is told by God to leave his homeland, Ur of the Chaldees. And this was probably a highly advanced civilization, uh, settlement back in Abraham's day. And uh, I'm not suggesting that they had high-speed internet or 5G uh, cell phone coverage, but I believe it was probably a highly advanced civilization. You know, folks back in those days were a whole lot smarter than we give them credit for. We, we have a very egotistical opinion of, of ourselves. We, uh, we're like the Bible says, we profess ourselves to be wise, but we have become fools. Because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, and we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. But uh, Abraham actually was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, Abraham, his father Terah, the Bible says, he was an idolater. We read that in Joshua 24, that Abraham came from a family of idolaters. 
and from everything I can read and study, they worshiped the moon god. That was their deity of worship. They worshiped the moon god. So Abraham, understand, he did not come from a Hebraic mindset, the worshiping the god of Jehovah. But God appears to him, and he tells him to leave his father and leave everything that was familiar. That was the first thing that he told him to do. The second crisis came sometime later when he and Lot, his nephew, have to part ways. And Lot, of course, chooses the well-watered plain of Jordan, and he chooses to pitch his tent towards Sodom. The third crisis of faith, we've talked about that some on Wednesday night, is when God commands Abram to send away Ishmael, who was his son born not according to promise, but the son born after the flesh. But this was a, no doubt a, a terrible thing for Abraham to have to deal with. And if you've ever read Genesis 21, you know that Abraham struggled with the decision to send away Ishmael. But now we come to the greatest trial, and that will be for him to offer his son. And keep in mind, this is the son that he had prayed for. This was the son that he had waited 25 years for God to, to bring into his life. And it's one kind of faith to believe God when you're waiting for the answer to prayer. It's entirely something else. After you receive the answer to prayer and God asks for this kind of radical obedience. Now the Bible says that God test, tempted Abraham in the King James. It, we might say now he proved Abraham or he tested him. Because we know from James that God does not tempt any man with evil. But he does test us. Now God didn't test Lot. There was no need to. We know what kind of caliber Lot is. He's a man of the world. He, he's a man of, that follows his appetites. He's a man that walks according to sight, not according to faith. But if you're going to be a person of faith, God's going to test you. If you're going to have an extraordinary, I don't mean ordinary, but if you're going to have an extraordinary walk with God, how many of you would like that? Show of hands. Just get your blood circulating. Even if you don't want it, pretend like you do. Uh, if you're going to have an extraordinary walk with God, God is going to test you. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. But a faith that is tested can be trusted. God knew already. Now, keep in mind as we read this story, God is not testing Abraham because he's waiting to see the outcome. God knows the end from the beginning. You know whose benefit this story is for? And it wasn't even for Abraham's benefit, I don't believe. It's for us. The Bible says that the things were written aforehand, Romans 15, 4, I think, were written for our admonition, for our, that we might have comfort and hope as we learn the Scriptures. Now, Abraham, his only dialogue with God, he says, Behold, here I am. It's one word in the Hebrew. And he's, he's basically saying, God, here I am. I'm available for you. Is that your response to God? Is that your attitude towards the Lord? Do you wake up each morning and say, Lord, what would you have me to do this day? Or, or, or are you like many of us that say, well, God, I, I'm willing to go this far, but not, please don't make me go this far. But Abraham is available. Now it says, uh, by the way, let's, let's back up. The end of chapter 21, by the way, this is when God commands Abraham to send away Ishmael and then Abimelech confronts him and they make this, he and this guy named Abimelech, who it's a title, it's not a proper name, but he and Abimelech, they make a covenant at Beersheba, which is, means the well of the oath or the well of swearing. And the end of chapter 21, notice it says that Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land 
and this was speaking prophetically because the Philistines weren't living there at the time, but it eventually would be Philistine territory. He says that Abraham lived there many days. Okay. Now, I think sometimes when we read this story, we picture Isaac as being a little baby boy or, or a young toddler, such. but I don't think that's the case at all. Abraham is at least 100 years old. He may be as old as 130 years old. The next time you see Isaac, he will be uh, 40 years old, and, and Sarah dies in the next chapter, and, and she dies at 137 years old, which means Isaac is somewhere, and this doesn't narrow it down, he's somewhere between the ages of 3 and 37. But keep in mind that Isaac is a type of Christ, so it may very well be that he may be 30 years of age or so. We don't know. We couldn't say definitively. But keep in mind, he's not a little baby that's, that's being drug up the mountain with his father. Okay. So God's going to test Abraham, verse 2. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. That's interesting. He's got another son, doesn't he, Ishmael? But as far as God's concerned, Isaac is the son of promise. He's the one that the seed, uh, the promise of the seed is going to come through. Whom you love. There's four qualifiers here. He's your son. He's your only son. He's not Ishmael, but he's Isaac. And he's your, the son that you love. Get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now, to us, this sounds like completely an unreasonable request. And, and certainly, God, we know the end of the story. God's going to intervene. Uh, Child sacrifice was something that the Canaanites practiced where Abraham lived. That was something that they did. And up until now, the law of Moses had not been codified. And so the laws against child sacrifice had not been. So Abraham is not necessarily wrestling with some kind of a, you know, a moral code here. He's simply hearing the voice of God. Now, he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now, Genesis is a book that's going to introduce us to this concept, the law of first mention. And sometimes when the first th something is mentioned for the first time in the book of Genesis, it will hold true throughout the, uh, the course of Scripture. Interestingly enough, this is the first time love is mentioned in the Word of God. Interesting. The Hebrew word is ahav. That's the word for love. This is the first time. Now, now that doesn't mean that love didn't exist prior to that. We know that Adam loved Eve and so on and so forth. And, uh, but, but this is the first mention of love in the Bible. Isn't it peculiar that the first mention of love has to do with a father and an only begotten son, a beloved son? Echoes of John 3.16 should be rolling around in your spirit now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now God has other sons. We are sons and daughters, children of God. The angels refer to as the sons of God. But Christ is the, the, the Greek word is monogenes. He is the only begotten son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here we see this. Now this land of Moriah, it only appears one other time in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 3 verse 1, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father, in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. Inter very interesting here. If you've ever read the story of David uh, through the Chronicles and Samuel, you know that David did something that got him in hot water, and it wasn't the episode with Bathsheba. He did something else. Does anybody know what he did? 
He took a census. He numbered the people. And God punished him. And there was a plague that broke out when David numbered the people. And at this place of Ornon, uh, the Jebusite, uh, David purchased this threshing floor. And it would later become the site of the Temple Mount. It is, isn't that interesting? That the same place that Abraham is told to offer Isaac would be the place where sacrifice would be offered in the temple of God later on when Solomon would build the temple. All right, verse 3 says, Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. Notice how many times it's going to mention the son, the son, the son, the son. And the, the other thing you need to pay attention to is the place, the place, the place, the son and the place. And he claved the wood for the burnt offering, and he rose up, and he went unto the place of which God had told him. Not just any place, but the place that God told him to go. Now, I don't know about you, but when I have a most unpleasant task, the last thing I want to do is get up early in the morning and get, and get to it. Uh, you know, I try to put it off as long as I can. I try to wait, and I procrastinate, and I, you know, I, I hem-haul around. And I say, well, let's pray about this a little bit more. Not sure this is God's will. But Abraham, it says he rose up early in the morning. This shows us his determination. His mind was made up. He was committed to radical obedience. And that's why it tells us he got up early in the morning. All right, verse 4. Then on the what day? Third day. Pay attention whenever you see the third day in the scriptures. And on the third day... Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off, okay. the mountain. Now, Moriah is kind of a ridge system. And so uh, we come to the third day here. Now, from the time God gave the commandment to Abraham, he said, offer up your son Isaac. As far as the truth goes, Isaac is as good as dead. Okay, When God gives the decree that Isaac will be dead, because when God says something, it comes to pass. So he's as good as dead. All right, verse 5. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide you here with the, with the ass, and I and the lad, the word lad here, again, it doesn't mean baby. Uh, it could mean young man or whatever. Don't, don't be thrown by that. He said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And and the Bible doesn't say we here, but the we is implied by the grammatical structure. We, so I'm going to insert it here, we will come again to you. Wait a minute. I thought Isaac's getting ready to die. <laughs> but Abraham says, we're going to be back. I am the Lord of worship, and we will return. I heard Skip Heisig say something that stuck with me. Uh, I heard him teaching on this passage one time. And he says, what Abraham did is he turned his worst moment into a worship moment. And that takes faith to do that. But I believe we'll see the glory of God if we can take our worst moment and make it a worship moment. And as I was praying yesterday, the Lord took me to a scripture. Remember, Job had a real bad day. If you've ever read, ever read Job chapter 1, I mean, he had a real bad day. His property was destroyed, his animals were stolen, and his children died in a storm. Now here's what Job says in Job 1.20. After all this happened, it says, Then Job arose, he rent his mantle, 
He shaved his head. He fell down upon the ground and he worshiped. He worshiped. And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it says, In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Abraham was turning his worst moment into a worship moment. Uh, God's never going to ask you and I to sacrifice our kids. He's not going to do that. But he may ask us to lay aside some dream, some ambition, something that we prayed for for a long time. And God may say, that's not my plan for you. I need you to lay it on the altar. There have been times in my life when God has said, I need you to lay this on the altar. I need you to lay Isaac on the altar. And it's always painful. But you have to understand, if you'll turn your worst moment into a worship moment, you'll see the glory of God. God always has your best interest at heart. You have to understand that. He always does. All right, verse 6. It says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. Now, the Hebrew word translated uh, knife here is only used a couple of places. The other time it's used as a noun uh, in... Uh, is in the book of Judges, and it talks of an instrument cutting a body into pieces to, to quarter a, a, a body. He took a knife, and the Bible this may be a subtle thing to you, but it says that both of them went together. And in the Hebrew, it means that they went together in agreement, that Isaac was willing, that he was not, going, he was not being tricked or drugged, as it were, but he was going willingly. And remember, he's a picture of the Son. Jesus Christ said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have the power to take it up again. He told the religious leaders of that day, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. You have to understand, Christ was not a victim of circumstance. Isaac is not an unwilling victim here. He is a worshiper. He and Abraham are worshiping. This is a holy moment, too. And keep in mind that at this point, the others are left behind, and now the son goes alone with the father, just like Jesus had to leave the others behind in the garden. He went a little farther, the Bible says, just he and his father, alone in Gethsemane, in that holy moment, they went both of them together. Verse 7, Isaac speaks unto Abraham his father, and he asks a question. He says, My father... And again, Abraham says, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So you see, Isaac is old enough to reason, you know, that there's, there should be an animal, a sacrificial am, animal here. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Well, John the Baptist will answer that question for us. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist will answer that question for us, but we'll have to wait several centuries for that to be answered completely. Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Notice the son asked a question of the father, even as Christ asked a question of his father in that garden. My father, if there be any other way, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done and Abraham said my son God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering 
there's several ways we could look at this. Number one, that God will make a provision for a lamb. But the way that the grammatical structure is here, you could also read it that God will provide himself as a sacrifice. And isn't that exactly what he did? The second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, he offered himself as a sacrifice. And notice again, we have this same curious, uh, peculiar phrase. It says, so they went, both of them, together. They are, they are willingly participating in this act of radical obedience and total obedience. Verse 9, it says, and they came to the place. Again, we see the place. They come to the place. Echoes of Calvary here. Mark 15, 22, it says, And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. There are some that believe that this, this uh, mountain here on Moriah is also Calvary. is the same place where Christ was crucified. I couldn't say that for certain. We know that it was the general area of the Temple Mount, perhaps. This was the very place that, that Christ died. They went both of them together. They came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham does a number of things here. And the Bible goes through in vivid detail to describe in the next few verses. It says that Abraham built an altar there. This was nothing new for him. Abraham was used to building altars. He put the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Keep in mind that, that Isaac has already carried the wood up the mountain, just like Jesus would carry his cross up Calvary's hill. But now he's bound. He's bound and he's laid upon the altar of the wood, just as Christ was. Uh, he was nailed to that cross. There would be no mercy for Christ that day. There would be no deliverance for him. He would suffer it all. And it says in verse 10, you can, this is unfolding like a, a drama. You know, this is very dramatic here. The Bible is showing us all of these vivid details because we need to understand that Abraham was going to go all the way through with it. Every, and can't you imagine just how excruciating every little detail of that was? There's a reason why we're told every little detail about Jesus' trial. The, the mocking, the scourging, the robe, the crown of thorns, the... Uh, the, um, the smiting, all of that. And here we have all the vivid details. And we see Abraham meticulously going through. And he gets all the way, all the way to, the, to, to carrying it out. And it says that he's ready to plunge the knife. You can maybe see the reflection of the sun glistening on that blade. He took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him. This is the angel of Jehovah. And he said, Abraham, Abraham. His, his name is repeated for dramatic emphasis here. The urgency of the moment. Abraham, Abraham. And, and Abraham says, here am I. Notice the only thing that, God, that Abraham has said to God is, here am I. That those are the only words that Abraham speaks to God. There, I think there's a lesson here. Uh, we, we, we always want explanations. We want God to explain everything, don't we? We always want God to tell us why we're going through it. And we always pray, God, how can I get out of this situation? 
instead of saying, God, what can I get out of this that will help me to glorify you? He said, here am I. And he said, lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him. Interesting phrase here. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Notice again the repetition of the son, the only son. Now I know. Did God learn anything here? Intellectually? No. The Bible says God knows the end from the beginning. The Bible says that, that Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in what sense does God know? Let me suggest to you, he knows it now experientially. What he already knew intellectually. God knows everything. That's omniscience. Now he knows experientially. And I believe this with all my heart. God wants to experience your obedience and my obedience. God wants to experience. He doesn't just want us to say, and how many times have we just simply said, God knows my heart. You know, Abraham could have said, God, you know my heart. I've walked with you all these years. Uh, you know I'd be willing to do anything for you. But he experienced. God allowed Abraham to go through all of that. And, and remember this too. Only did intervention come after Abraham's complete and total obedience. Any, any part along the way, God could have intervened. He could have stopped them when they were walking up the mountain, when, uh, when they're binding Isaac upon the altar. At, at any moment, God could have stopped it. But he waited until that, that total obedience, total submission. And then he intervened. God wants to experience your obedience. God delights in his children. But even though God knows your heart and he knows everything, he wants to experience your obedience. He wants that. All right. Something interesting here. I'm going to read to you uh, something from verse 12 from the Septuagint, which is the, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I just saw this yesterday. In the Septuagint, this is how it reads. For my sake thou hast not spared thy beloved son. And that's interesting because when you get to Romans 8, 32, Paul says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Pretty neat. All right. Verse 13, it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes and says, And behold... Behind him, a ram, not a lamb. wasn't time for the lamb yet. There's a ram that's caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. So we see here that this ram, and Abraham instinctively knows this, that this ram is to be a substitutionary animal. And here we see again, the substitutionary atonement, the, the vicarious death, if you will, of the Son of God. Jesus died in your place. Amen. Jesus died in my place. On that cross, He took your place. He took the punishment that was due each and every one of us, and He took it upon Himself. He took the wrath of God that each one of us rightly deserves. Every person in this room pastor included 
I deserve to be in the pit of hell. That's what I deserve. If God were to give me what I deserve, number one, I'd be dead already. Number two, I'd be in the deepest, darkest pit of hell somewhere. If God gave me what I deserve. But Jesus died in my place. He died in my place. So that if I have faith in him and I accept what he did for me personally, not just intellectually, intellectually, but it, with my heart, I accept that I can be saved. And what's true of Jesus is true of me. His righteousness is applied to my account. That's a worship moment, folks. Verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Yireh. Or as we say here in the south, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. And we always say it's God provides, but, but the, it's from the, the verb uh, ra'ah, which means to see. Uh, provide is okay. Nothing wrong with that. But in the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. It was named prophetically. In the mountain of Jehovah it will be seen. What will be seen? The Messiah will come, born of a virgin. He will come, born of the seed of Abraham, from the house of David. He would be tempted at all points like as we are, yet without sin. He would go to the cross. He would die. He would be buried in a borrowed tomb. And he would rise again the third day, alive forevermore. Understand when it speaks of God's provision here, yes, God's going to meet your need. The Bible says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. We're going to be okay. And most of the stuff that we pray about, Jesus said, you don't even need to pray about. You realize that? Most of the stuff that we pray about, which is what are we going to wear, what are we going to eat, how are we going to be clothed, uh, you know, how is God going to take care of me from day to day to day to day? Jesus said, your father already knows what you have need of before you ask. Most, probably nine-tenths of what we pray for is going to work out anyway, even if we don't pray. That's no excuse not to pray. But I'm saying the stuff that dominates our prayer life is covered by God's provision anyway. God's going to take care of us. But this speaks of the spiritual provision for you and me. God has made provision for our greatest need. My greatest need is for my sins to be forgiven and for me to be right with God. And God made provision for me 2,000 years ago on Calvary's cross. He made provision for you and for me that every person in this room, their ticket to heaven has been stamped, paid in full, if you will simply receive it. I'm going to heaven one day. Don't you want to go with me? Don't you want to go with me? Amen. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time. This is again the angel of Jehovah. Now this is no ordinary angel. You know why? Because we see in the next few verses this angel is going to speak in the first person. Notice this angel says, by myself have I sworn. This is no ordinary angel. This is God himself. By myself have I sworn. That's quite an oath. Why did God swear by himself? Because he looked around and there was nobody greater to swear by. <laughs> he swore by himself. For because you've done this thing, and you've not withheld your son, your only son. Have you, do you see the repetition of this over and over again here? That in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thee, as thy seed is the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your seed shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed. 
That's why we're here today. All of us Gentiles, that's how we can worship God and, and have peace with, with God and be a part of the covenant, be grafted into that Abrahamic covenant is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, but notice at the end of verse 18, there's a cause and effect relationship. Why? Why is all this going to happen? Because you have obeyed my voice. Aren't you glad Abraham obeyed that day? <laughs> Boy, there was a lot at stake here. We didn't realize what all was at stake. It wasn't just Abraham's, his, his fate that was at stake. Mine and yours was at stake. You see, you and I are part of the drama on Mount Moriah. Do you realize that? You and I are part of this drama that's taking place on Mount Moriah. Amazing. So what is the application here? Well, by the way, the, right, I'm going to tease you. I'm going to tease you for Wednesday night, okay? But then we're going to get into an application here really quickly. Now, in verse 20, it says, And it came to pass after these things... Uh, I'm sorry, verse 19, I skipped. Important. In verse 19, it says, So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now, it says that Abraham went back, but there's a conspicuously absent figure in the narrative. Who is not mentioned? Isaac. Ooh, that's interesting. But we know Isaac was spared. We know that Isaac came back, but from the biblical narrative, Isaac is missing from the story. Oh, I wonder what that's all about. You'll have to come for Wednesday night to figure that out. Why is Christ not mentioned here? Why, excuse me, why is Isaac not mentioned here? And, and it end, the end of the chapter, it ends with a genealogy, okay? Which seems like an, an odd thing, right? I mean, here we have this drama about Abraham offering his son, and then here's a genealogy. Well, there's some names mentioned there, but there's one name that ought to jump out to you at the end of that genealogy, and that is this lady named Rebecca. Okay? And she's going to be the wife of Isaac. So after, after the sacrifice of Isaac, then there's the birth of Rebecca, who is a picture of the church. But you'll have to come for Wednesday night to get some more of that kind of stuff. All right. Or you can buy me a cup of coffee and I'll sit down and tell it to you. So if you can't make it here on Wednesday night, I'm just, you know, dying to tell you. So I'll be glad to tell you. All right. So what's the application here? Well, number one, your faith will be tested. I don't care who you are. Your faith will be tested. Peter says that. Think it not strange concerning the tri fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you. Your faith will be tried. And at times it will be tried by fire. Your faith will be tried by fire. James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works or produces patience, perseverance, endurance. And we have to let patience have its perfect work. Every day, I believe, God is asking this question, do you trust me? Are you going to trust me in this situation? Everybody in this room, I dare say, is facing something. Now, it may not be some monumental problem, but you're facing some situation, and God is asking you, do you trust me in this? We're also going to face this temptation too. Do you love God more than anything in the world? Jesus said we've got to love God more than husband or wife, more than father or mother, son or daughter. Do we love God more than anything else in the world? And some of you say, well, I don't want my husband to love 
God more than me. Listen, if, if your husband doesn't love God more than you, he'll never love you the way you need to be loved. Or, or wife. Husband, you, sh you ought to want your wife to love God more than you. Because only as she loves God more than you can she submit to you and love you as you're supposed to be loved and reverenced as a husband. What about that thing you've been praying about and God finally gave it to you? Are you willing to give it back to God? Say, God, this is yours. See, there's always going to be a temptation for us to worship the gift instead of the giver. Always. And we have to be sensitive to that. Are you willing to obey? Here's another point. Are you willing to obey completely? Not halfway. Some of us might have been willing to go the three-day journey. But when it came time to lay Isaac down on the altar, we would have fallen short. I know I would have probably. Are we willing to obey completely? Even, listen to me, even when the request seems unreasonable. God will often ask you and I to do things. Now, I'm not talking about goofy stuff. I'm not talking about going out and making a fool out of yourself. Jumping off a building and saying, hey, God's going to save me. No, I'm not talking about tempting God. But sometimes God will ask you to do something that to everyone around you will seem unreasonable. It will seem unreasonable. But if you'll obey God, you'll see the glory of God. Here's another point here. When it does seem unreasonable, and when you don't know, I mean, a lot, Abraham didn't understand. I, I don't know that Abraham understood all of the, the significance of what he was going through. He just knew God had asked him to do an awfully hard thing. And sometimes God will ask us to do things that are hard. We, we've got this concept of God that's totally unbiblical. Sometimes God will ask difficult things of you. And when you don't know what God is doing... Listen, I know some of you right now in this room are going through some really hard things. Difficult. And, and you may be tempted to ask yourself this question, why am I going through this? You know, and it's only human for us to question that. Why am I going through But listen, we don't live by explanations. We live by the promises of God. We don't live by explanations. We may never know the why, but we live by the promises of God. Here's what we do know. Paul says, but we know and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those that are called according to His purpose. Even those things that are so devastating at times, even those things that are, pardon the expression, excruciating. We use that term too, too easily, I think. But even things that are excruciating, God uses them. To mold us and shape us. Now what gave Abraham the resolve to do this? What gave him the resolve to do this? Well, Abraham had a promise. In Genesis 21, God had said to Abraham, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. And Paul will echo this in Romans 9, verse 7. So here, here's the setup here. God tells Abraham to offer Isaac so in Abraham's mind he thinks okay God you've got a problem I don't have a problem God you have a problem because you promised me that in Isaac shall your seed be called and up until this point Isaac has no children 
he won't get married until chapter 24 from our perspective we don't know how many years but he's not married yet he has no children so Abraham says God it's not my problem it's your problem and that's how he can get up early in the morning you see and go on this impossible task the Bible says that uh, you know Abraham had overcome some some objections you see Abraham had already Abraham had already seen God resurrect the dead you say what do you mean Henry Romans 4 18 it says who against hope believed in hope this is Abraham that he might be the father of many nations according to which which was spoken so shall thy seed be and being not weak in faith this is Abraham he considered not his own body now dead when he was a hundred years old about a hundred years old neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief Hebrews 11, 11. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful that had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead. So many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Abraham had already seen God raise the dead. There was a dead womb, and as far as he was concerned, his body was dead. He was not able to father children anymore. You see, all along, God had been building Abraham for this moment. He'd been building his character. There are things that you're going through right now. God is developing your character. He's testing you. He's proving you. He's building you up in your most holy faith. He's showing you. He's helping you to get the training wheels off the bike. He's, he's showing you that he's going to do greater and mighty things in your life if you'll submit to him but this this is not the most interesting thing to me the most interesting thing about this is he has a promise he knows that in Isaac shall thy seed be called but then we get to Hebrews 11 uh, verse 17 it's interesting here and he says by faith Abraham when he was tried he offered up Isaac and he that had received the promises Offered up his only begotten son. And again, there's that curious phrase. His only begotten son. Of whom it was said. That in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now Hebrews eleven nineteen. I love this. It says accounting. Remember that word accounting? That's our Greek friend. Legizomai. How many times have we come, come across our Greek word legizomai? It means to reckon. To account. To reason. To account it to be so because it is. It says he reasoned, he was accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. <laughs> from whence also he received him in a figure. Uh, 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 in a parable, Isaac did come back from the dead. When? On the third day. Isaac came back to Abraham from the dead on the third day. But Abraham reasoned, he believed. What saved Abraham? It was his belief in the resurrection. He believed that Isaac would be resurrected if God had to do this. Now, Paul in his writings, and we're, we're closing our promise here. If you've ever read Romans in particular, Paul makes a lot of emphasis. He puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that Abraham believed God's promise that he would be the father. Abraham believed, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, or legizomai. It was reckoned unto him for righteousness. But James, James has a different emphasis. Paul talks about the fact that we are saved by faith, by grace, through faith. 
alone. But James teaches us that the kind of faith that saves us is never alone. Now here's what James says. James says in James 2.21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. When was Abraham called the friend of God? After he had offered Isaac on the altar. I believe that there's children of God in this room, saved, uh, delivered from their sins. But I believe God's wanting a more intimate relationship with you. He wants you to be his friends. You see, the servant, he's in the house, but he doesn't know what his Lord's doing, but the friend knows. Remember what God said to Abraham? Uh, or God said, shall I hide from Abraham this thing that I do? No. God was, Abraham was privy. <laughs> Abraham was privy to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew it was going to happen before it happened. Guess who didn't know? Lot. And Lot's over there in Sodom. He's the mayor of Sodom. Or he's on the town council. I don't know if he's the mayor. Lot's on the town council of Sodom. He has no idea that it's about to be destroyed. And he's going to have to be drug out of there kicking and screaming. But not so with Abraham. Abraham knows beforehand what's going on. I believe that God's looking for a people that will get close to him. And he's going to show you what's going on in this world. These are the last days, folks. If there's ever a time when you needed to know you need to be close to God and you need to know what's going on in the world, it is now of all times. Listen to me, church. I'm, I'm not in the text anymore. I'm just preaching prophetically here to you. I have no idea what's going to happen with this Vladimir Putin thing. I can tell you this much. The Bible says that there is going to be an invading army from the north, from the very regions that are, that are in the news right now. Russia, Iran, Turkey, that, that whole area, Eastern Europe, there is going to be an invasion in Israel. Now, will it be before the rapture or after the rapture? I don't know. But I can tell you this, the pieces are beginning to line up. The chess pieces are lining up on the board. And we don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be fearful. When you watch the news, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't need to let it shake you. Because we know. Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Don't let your heart be troubled. He says when you see all these things, don't, don't be anxious, don't be fearful. He says you need to look up for your redemption is drawing near, folks. Hallelujah. We don't need to be fearful of this. But listen, most of the world has no clue what's going on. You know, they're wringing their hands and they're... You know, they're thinking, well, if we just had a different leader in place, none of this. Listen to me, folks. God's in control regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of who's in the United Nations, in the Pentagon or whatever. God is in control. And this thing is unraveling as it's supposed to. And you and I, our responsibility is to pray for our leaders, pray for all of them. I don't care what their political affiliations are. To pray for our leaders and to pray for our nation. Our nation needs to turn back to God, folks. We're far, far away from God. We've, we've told him to leave us alone, and guess what? He's abandoned us to our own devices. You can see it. All the filth and immorality in every corner and crevice of society. We've said, God, we don't want you, and God says, have it your way. And it's not a good way, is it? We desperately need a Holy Spirit-sent revival. And would you join with me in prayer 
that God will send a revival. Here at Deep Springs Baptist Church, hey, if we don't get right with God, how do we ever expect the world to get right with God? We've got to be right with God. We need our nation to get right with God. We need our county to get right with God. Anson County needs to turn back to God. Union County needs to turn back to God. We need to just surrender our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and watch and see what He will do. You see, is God calling you to lay Isaac on the altar this morning? I don't know. I don't know what your Isaac is. I don't know what it is, but you know. What is that area of your life where God is calling for radical obedience? Where is it? Because I know He is, you see. Or else I wouldn't be here preaching this morning, preaching this message. There's somebody in this room, maybe every one of us, that God says, look, you're doing okay. You know, you've been through some trials. And we know Abraham wasn't perfect. He had, you know, he had some hills and valleys in his life. But God's interested in your destination. He's interested in where you're going, okay? But every one of us in here, God's saying, what area of your life have you yet to surrender to me? God says, if you will surrender me in radical obedience, what you'll find, that if you'll turn your worst moment into a worship moment, that his provision will be seen. Whatever it is that God's asked you to give up on the altar, he'll give you something so much better, so much greater. And it'll be a, a moment of worship, and you too can be a friend of God. Would you stand this morning? Abraham was able to spare his son. His, his son was spared. God spared Abraham's son. But God did not spare his son. Jesus went through all the agony on the cross. And it wasn't just the pain of the nails and the thorns and all of that stuff. It was having the wrath of God that belongs to you and me poured out on him on Calvary's cross. And it would be such a tragedy for Jesus to die in your place and you to reject that sacrifice and spend all of eternity in outer darkness, in hell, in the lake of fire. It would be a tragedy to turn your back on such love. That's the first mention of love in the Bible. But it wouldn't be the last. God so loved the world. God loves you. God loves everybody in this room. You're wondering, does, does anybody love me? Yes, God loves you. And he's demonstrated that love for you. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, you come here today and you call on the name of the Lord. Just sincerely say, God, I made a mess of things. I confess to you I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. Save me, Lord. And God will not turn you away. But maybe, just maybe, there's some Christians in here and God's calling you to an extraordinary walk. He's saying, I don't want you to just be a run-of-the-mill as if there were any run-of-the-mill Christians. We're all miracles in here, but... Uh, God's saying, I want you to be a friend of mine. I want you to see the glory of God. Would you come just as I am?